1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's uh, that time of the week again when we get back to our roots with this, the mothership of all of our podcasts. Uh, and uh, today, uh, I'm particularly delighted that we have a guest who has been with us before, but he's in a new capacity. Jeremy Kanondik is the president of Refugees International. He previously served in the Biden administration as a USAID's lead official for COVID-19, which is he was doing when we talked to him the last time, and as the director of USAID's Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance under the Obama administration. How are you doing, Jeremy?
0: Well, about as well as can be hoped for, I think, given what's going on in the world. It's good to be back, David.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's good to talk to you. I've noticed some of the comments that you made um, uh, over the past few weeks on social media regarding the, the, the uh, crisis in Gaza. Um, and I was struck by them. I was very sympathetic to them uh, because, uh, you know, you, by virtue of what you're doing, are looking at this from the human side, the humanitarian side. And uh, I just thought I'd start with, you know, your, your reaction to this particular crisis one month in.
0: So I would start with a few things. I think first acknowledging that what, initiated this latest round was to all appearances a war crime and a crime against humanity um, in the actions by Hamas on October 7th. And I think that that is relevant for a few reasons. Um, What we as refugees international are grounded in is international humanitarian law. And so what we are, when we look at the context of the conflict, we evaluate it through that lens. And what that, what that tells us is that even when uh, even when a military action is justified under um, under the under international law, it still has to be carried out according to international humanitarian law, and that means the primacy of protecting civilians at at the center of that. And so, you know, our, a lot of our commentary has been both pointing out that yes, the actions of Hamas also violated that. Um, but at the same time, the actions that we're seeing from the Israeli military in Gaza right now contain a lot what 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 appear to all what appear to be a lot of violations of that, um, both in terms of some of the specific military taxis, tactics that are being used, but also things like the the besiegement of the entire territory, which are uh, prohibited by international law. And so we have been trying to be fairly even-handed in calling this out calling out you know, any violation of that we see from either side, which doesn't necessarily make you popular anywhere, but I think is really important to the credibility of international humanitarian law. And you know, on that front, there's also, I think, a degree of disappointment and alarm at what we're seeing right now from particularly the U.S. administration and, and um, some of the wider world, in particular Europe, in... The you know they have been spending the last year and a half during the war in ukraine calling out rightly a lot of the 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 violations of international law that russia is is committing when we see similar tactics being used now in gaza the response is much more muted and i think that that unfortunately undermines the whole credibility and foundation of international humanitarian law. And it's something that we've been pressing the Biden administration to be more forthright about.
1: Um, well, you've been in the administration, and I think one of the things that is hard to judge is 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 whether they're being forthright in private. You know, it is, it is quite clear that there is a growing divergence between the American views and Israeli views. Um, on issues like humanitarian pauses uh on issues like uh actions that they're taking in the west bank on issues like uh, how they're conducting the war and having to do with uh uh um doing so in a way that's respectful of international law uh and finally most recently on the issue of uh whether or not um Israel should take over Gaza at the conclusion of this. Um, and uh, it seems to me that there is a growing tension between the U.S. and the Israelis. And I, and I guess, you know, asking you, you know, this in, in your capacity at Refugees International, how should the U.S. be handling this to get the best possible outcome? Should it be doing so more multilaterally, working more with allies, being more public? What would, what would you
0: prescribe? I think that that, I think first, I think your analysis is absolutely right. They, um, from everything that, that I am hearing, they are being much tougher on the Israelis behind the scenes. Um, and you can start to see some of that coming through in the public commentary as well. Um, Secretary Blinken just today, laid down a set of uh, red lines, one of which was no besiegement of of Gaza. Obviously, that one is being violated quite quite openly by the IDF right now. Um, I think what that points to is, yes, there is this tension, this increasing divergence between what the administration says it wants to see in terms of behavior and the actual amount of change that uh, that we're seeing from the IDF and from the Israeli government. And I think that's a that's a disconnect that's going to continue to grow unless and until the Biden administration puts some more teeth behind uh, those statements. And I look back to something that I was uh, personally involved in during the Obama administration, which was a, a kind of parallel challenge with the Saudis uh, during the war in Yemen. So we had... Um, uh, th- it, over a, over a longer sort of this is a more compressed version of that, but over a period of about a year and a half, the Obama administration tried and tried and tried, mostly quietly behind the scenes, to push quite hard on the Saudi government to respect the laws of war, to avoid civilian harm, to avoid disproportionate and indiscriminate airstrikes. At a time when, of course, we were the U.S. government was refueling Saudi planes, was providing the Saudis with arms and with intelligence. Um, And it really didn't achieve much. Um, That quiet behind-the-scenes diplomacy, which we tried and tried and tried, did not achieve much. And the only thing that ultimately really got their attention was when, um, far too late in the process, the White House announced that it was going to suspend uh, further uh, provision of arms to the Saudis pending a review. And that came only after a series of very egregious airstrikes, including a double-tap airstrike on a large funeral. I think that you know the, the Biden administration would do quite well to look at that and look at how much um, many of the same people, frankly, who are now in government, spun their wheels with the Saudis and got very little to show for it. Ultimately, um, so Spencer Ackerman wrote a, a piece in The Nation a day or two ago where he said, Netanyahu is very good at blowing through yellow lights if you don't give him red ones. And I think that that is kind of where the administration is stuck right now. They want to see... The behavior of the Israeli government on this change and all the ways they've been calling for, but they're not really ready yet to uh, use the kind of diplomatic tools it would take to compel that.
1: Thank you. Um, of course, with us here is Corey Shaki, our our, our our longtime friend and partner in all of this. How are you doing today, Corey?
2: I am exceedingly well, David. I'm in New York City, a place I love.
1: Uh, well, that's a good place to be. Um, uh, we're talking to Jeremy about, uh, you know, his perspective on this as as president of Refugees International, and on, you know, what the best approach for the U.S. government ought to be, as there seems to be a divergence between the U.S. and the Israelis on this. And so, I want to hand it over to you to be able to ask Jeremy a question, but I'd also be interested in your answer, Corey, as to what what you think we could be doing better. To handle the human side of this crisis.
2: Oh, I wish I had a good answer to that, David, but I actually don't. Um, I I think the Israeli government's choosing from among catastrophically bad choices, and that you know the play Hamas made, which is to bait the Israelis into precisely this kind of of position, I struggle to think what better solutions, what better choices the Israeli government could be making. Um, I can see lots of better choices. All those better choices have enormous downsides to them. So I, unfortunately, am actually not going to be Much help in trying to think of what are better policies that could be enacted. And I agree with Jeremy's point that the Netanyahu government um, is going to be blithely unresponsive to any constraints the United States is trying to urge and to any humanitarian measures the United States is trying to urge on Israel. And it looks to me, from polls of Israeli attitudes, that it's not just the government that the that the Israeli public is in support of the choices the government is making. Um, Which, given how much public dissatisfaction there is with the Netanyahu government, is a pretty striking. um, It's a it's pretty telling that there's that much public support for what the government is doing in the war effort. It's just, this is just horrible and it's probably gonna continue to be horrible for some time. And I'm a little bit curious, David, I'd be interested in you both your and Jeremy's reactions about why the Obama, excuse me, why the Biden administration thought they would be able to influence Israeli action because I struggle to think of a time we had much influence over Israeli government choices on security issues generally. I mean, I think one of the reasons people were skeptical that Israel was interested in this triangular security treaties with the Saudis and the United States was a question of whether Israel would agree to a treaty with the United States that might Force restrictions on their choices, precisely in circumstances like this.
1: You have a thought on that, Jeremy? Well, Which I just, by is... the way, my neat way of sidestepping because she asked <laughs> me.
0: to. Yeah, I noticed what you did there, too. Um Look, I, I I largely agree with Corey's analysis. I think that there is it is it is difficult it is difficult to influence this government, um, when obviously Netanyahu is fighting for his own political life, quite, quite, you know, quite apart from this, but now made much more acute by, uh, the attacks on October 7th. And he, you know, this is the one area where perhaps he has some popular support, which is quite a grim, you know, quite a grim situation. Um, that said, they have listened to the U S on a few things where the U S has apparently pushed quite hard. So when the Communications have been turned off several times. Uh, there were, as I understand it, screaming phone calls sent in the direction of the Israeli government that got that turned back on again. Um, they, they had uh, defense minister Gallant did say that the only reason they are allowing any trucks in at all is due to U.S. pressure. So there is a degree to which, really, very much on the margins. But there is a degree to which um, there have been a few course corrections, at uh, a you know minor course corrections by the Israeli military in response to some of the diplomatic pressure from the U.S. I think that they will remain minor as long as the the only tool being used is quiet behind the scenes, or maybe not so quietly behind the scenes, diplomacy. Um, And that's potentially going to lead to a really awkward and challenging situation for the Biden administration, which again is somewhat analogous to what we faced on Yemen, which is um, if... If apparent violations of the laws of war are being committed by a partner government with US diplomatic and military support, that's both a legal problem and a big diplomatic and reputational problem for the US and the wider world.
2: I would argue that it that it will be a much harder situation for the Biden administration than support for Saudi and Emirati efforts in Yemen because the president personally and so vociferously has, has emphasized his support for the Israeli government's choices. That's going to be very hard to walk back and makes the Secretary of State's job much harder.
0: I totally agree.
1: So let me ask you, Jeremy, two questions that sort of look forward, and they're both big ones. But one is, it, it looks like this kind of military action is going to continue for quite some time, um, certainly weeks, possibly a number of months. Given what we've seen in terms of the impact on the citizens of Gaza, um, you know, is there a point of criticality here? I mean, it it couldn't. I mean, it's, it seems pretty awful now, but I, mean, I read today at some point that something like half of the hospitals in Gaza are now not functioning does there come a point where you start running up against problems of the complete absence of healthcare or complete absence of other, you know, um, vital, um, um, services or provisions?
0: That's a that's interesting way to frame the question. I mean, the, the situation is already critical and I think it's worth looking at other reference points. Um, in this in this conflict in the past month, more than ten thousand dead and counting uh, four thousand of those children, more than four thousand of those children. Um, in the first year and a half of the Saudi air campaign in Yemen, thirty eight hundred people were killed. So in just over a month this uh, this campaign in obviously a much much smaller population as well is is going to is on the cusp of having triple the casualties that the Saudis and the Emiratis levied in the first year and a half. Um, A million and a half people displaced inside Gaza already, that's two-thirds of the population. And according to the UN, approaching half of the housing stock in all of Gaza, damaged or destroyed, Um, again, in just over a month. Um, It's a little bit hard in that context to say, okay, but when does it get really bad? Because that's already extraordinarily bad. a couple of the things that
1: uh, I, mean, I, I, I know that it's bad. What I'm saying is, is there a switch there where a it becomes it? a quantum yeah. level worse?
0: Yeah. Well, so as I think of what what could, I think you know, we're already at one quantum. What would be another quantum? Uh, one could be a large outbreak uh, outbreak of disease, and I would I would very much expect, given the given the limited access to water, the damage to water sanitation facilities, um, and the the great Grave damage and growing damage to healthcare that we could start to see significant spread of waterborne diseases, and that will kill a lot of people in this kind of a circumstance. Um, food stocks will also run low, and I'm I'm surprised that we're not seeing more reports of hunger, but I think that's going to grow as well. Both of those, and particularly those two in combination, will you know would start to put the territory in. you know, in pre-famine conditions, potentially depending on, and I don't, you know, there's not an accurate measurement of how close we are to that now, but that's the sort of thing that I would look to as what could the next, the next quantum level of awfulness look like there.
1: Corey, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, has indicated that their move down the road will be to take control of Gaza. Um, and to administer it for a while. That didn't turn out very well the last time. The Biden administration is opposed to it. What do you think of that as a plan? And I put the word plan in air quotes because I'm not sure that's actually a plan.
2: So I think it's a terrible idea. And I think there's probably no alternative to it. because. By overthrowing the government in Gaza, Israel has responsibility for, for governance for, and providing of essential services. So they can't just walk away and having destroyed Hamas, leave the place ungoverned, leave people um, incapable of having food, water, medical assistance. Uh, look sounds to me like Secretary Blinken is trying to gin up support among countries of the Gulf for some sort of um, governance or peacekeeping force comprised of Arab states, but I'd be astonished whether any of them thought that was a terrific idea. Uh, Jeremy, you may think differently, but... Um, you know, riding in on the back of an Israeli tank is not a look anybody else is going to want to rock, I should think.
0: No, and I think that 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 is why the the level of destruction and the level of, of apparent disregard for the laws of war that we're seeing from the, the military offensive right now is not just damaging from a, a, a human and a humanitarian point of view, which obviously it is, but. I think it is very damaging to whatever Israel's long-term strategic goals are as well, because any sort of post-Hamas, um, if that's even achievable, any sort of post-Hamas construct for governing Gaza will only work if it has some legitimacy in the, the eyes of the wider region. And I think that that moment has probably already passed, given the reaction in the wider region to what Israel's been doing. What Do, do you think there's a better
1: way to handle this than the offing?
0: I think in a way, Netanyahu is caught between kind of this situation and, and his political project over the last 20 years. What he needs right now is he needs some other viable alternative that could govern Gaza with legitimacy. And he spent a long time undermining the creation. You know, PA is so weak that they're not really able to step in. They wouldn't step in to save him from this in any case, given um, you know, given what we've seen over the past month. Um, I, I think there, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a great answer for that. I think that there is, you know, if you have, um, if you have heart disease, you can't go back and, and kind of reverse engineer 20 years of eating better. Like it's, um, I think he is, he is, he is real, he's in the spot here and, and it's going to obviously come at a high civilian cost in Gaza, um, a high cost to the state of Israel as well. Um and i think that's yeah I, there's not a great there's not a great solution that i see either
2: and even if the palestinian authority would agree to govern gaza their legitimacy is deeply in doubt as well
0: that's exactly it and and you know by no accident um,
1: and and their capacity is very limited yeah yeah Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's definitely a a conundrum, you know, one of the things I'd like to do, and, and Corey, after I take the break, I will turn to you and you can ask a question of Jeremy in any direction you want, but one of the things I'd like to talk a little bit about is placing this in the context of the rest of the kind of humanitarian issues that you're dealing with at Refugees International, because I know Ukraine, Darfur and other places are on your mind, and I I'd like to give, give that a, a little bit of exposure. This is the point in our podcast where we say to everybody who is not a member, um, uh, we wish you were a member. And if you go to the DSRnetwork.com and you click on membership for $5 a month, you can support this. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the DSR Network is the leading provider of in-depth policy podcasts that there is anywhere. Uh, we, we do about a million downloads a month. Uh, where we do um, uh, many, many podcasts each and every week with great experts like Jeremy. Um, but we need support to be able to continue to do it. And if you've been listening for a while and you think it's of some value, for less than the cost of kind of a latte per month, you can help us out by, by doing that. So if you're not a member, hope you'll consider
0: becoming a member. If you are a member, um, stand by. We'll be back in a moment.